I feel for many business owners, the greatest day they have in their business is the day before they start the business because there's a great vision. I'm going to change the world. I have such impact. And we go in and then it's like the oh crap moment. I didn't realize no one knows who I am and I need to sell this. So we do need to get rich. And I'd also take it one step further in arguing that our clients want us to be rich. Now, they'll never say that. Like no client or prospect will come to you and say, hey, could you, could you double the prices on me? Or, hey, could you please rip me off a little bit? I'd like that. But what our clients will say is they want our undivided attention. They want our best effort. They don't want us to be distracted about worrying about we're gonna get money tomorrow. They want us fully. The only way to do that is by being profitable, by concentrating on getting rich. Because if you care for your financials, you'll be able to be focused, uh, you'll be stable, you'll be able to deliver the best of your services and then scale from there. So you have to build profitability into your organization. It's the only way to be of great service. You must get for the business in order to give to the community. This is the Ideas Lab podcast, where you can learn from great creative and entrepreneurial minds how to turn your ideas into original businesses, books, and brands. Because in a crowded world, it pays to stand out. This is your host, John Williams, best-selling author and founder of the Ideas Lab London. Mike Michalowicz is a New York Times best-selling author who sold over half a million books. He's also built four multi-million dollar companies and sold two of them. But he admits it's not all being positive. He lost his house at one point, lost his entire fortune twice, launched 10 failed businesses and experienced years of depression. After working out where he was going wrong in his own businesses and finding a way to solve it, he became a business author with one clear mission, to eradicate entrepreneurial poverty. So I'm delighted Mike agreed to be on the podcast. I loved his book, The Pumpkin Plan, and also Profit First. And now his new book is out, Fix This Next. In order to get a successful business off the ground and keep it growing, you find that there is a never-ending list of things to be done and broken stuff to fix. And what Mike has done in Fix This Next is show a systematic way to simplify that process and make your business take off. Hi, Mike. Thanks so much for joining us on the Ideas Lab podcast. John, it's my pleasure to be here. Thank you for inviting me. Well, I've listened to so many of your books now. For some reason, I've ended up listening to your books rather than reading them, although I've got Profit First as well. Um, it's kind of difficult to know where to start, but your most recent is Fix This Next. And mm. if, you, if you're going to sum up what the book is about, how would you describe it? Uh, the thesis. And the thesis is the biggest challenge entrepreneurs have is knowing what their biggest challenge is. I uh, it's, it's a life I lived, so I'm an entrepreneur myself and, and continue to be, but the life I lived for so long was putting out fires. You know, I'm a fire extinguisher. I constantly uh, address all these different issues that present themselves, all the apparent issues. And as my business grew, maybe I wasn't a fire extinguisher. Now I was the fire chief. I was just directing other people. And my businesses, while they grew a little bit in size, they were never moving toward my vision consistently. It was two steps forward, yet three steps back. And uh, after now connecting with uh, countless entrepreneurs, it's very clear that's the lifestyle of most entrepreneurs. We address the apparent issues at the direct disregard for the impactful issue. 
the most important thing. And that's why our biggest challenge is knowing our biggest challenge is. Fix This Next is a tool to pinpoint what's the one most important thing your business needs from you now. Right. And this relies on this hierarchy of needs, the business hierarchy of needs, did you call it that? And I love this. That's correct. Yeah, the parallel with the BHN, as the abbreviation is, um, is is, uh, a parallel with Maslow's hierarchy of needs. I have a feeling a lot of my people will understand that. And people have seen the joke versions of Wi-Fi written on the bottom. But how do you, which was very amusing, how do you explain it for people who maybe haven't come across that concept? How would you explain it? Yeah, so uh, Maslow's hierarchy of needs is a um, argument of the commonality of all of humanity, right? So it's interesting, particularly in these times, you know, it's very clear that we judge on external factors. But when you peel back the skin of humanity, the makeup's the same and our need structure's the same. What I argue is when you look at a business externally, we consider ourselves to be so unique and so different, but essentially all businesses have the same need structure. Now Maslow, just as a quick primer, foundationally he says we all have physiological needs, breathe air, drink water. Once that's satisfied, we move to next level needs of safety and you continue to climb up ultimately to self-actualization. Maslow argued at any time, if a base level need is being compromised, we will biologically respond to address it. So as I'm presenting, if I'm drinking water and I start choking on the water, I'll stop sharing and I'll start trying to dislodge this you know, stuff from my, my air passageway. It's a biological response. The business hierarchy of needs is five levels of needs in business with one great distinction from Maslow's in that the business hierarchy of needs, we, don't, we are not biologically wired into our business. Unfortunately, many business owners trust their gut. They say, my instinct says to do this. But since we're not neurologically wired into our business, um, we can't rely on instinct alone. It may be a good beacon, but we need empirical data to, to back our considerations. The five levels very quickly are sales. Sales is the creation of, uh, of cash for a business. I consider it like oxygen. You need to breathe to survive. A business needs sales to survive. Without it, it's suffocating. But more and more sales alone does not cure a business. In fact, it can cause it to hyperventilate. So we need sales to be sufficient, but it alone is not adequate. The next level above that is profit. Profit is the creation of stability. Warren Buffett has a saying, uh, I'm paraphrasing, but when the tide goes out, you see who's swimming naked. You know, As we see businesses um, being stretched now in this new economy, you see what businesses are not focused on profit and it's, it's destroying them. So profit brings about stability for an organization. Once that's adequately satisfied, we move to order. That's the third level. Order is the creation of organizational efficiency. The ultimate test or proof that this is working is there's no dependency on the owner themselves in a small business. If a business can run without the owner, now the business owner owns a business and not the reverse where the business owns the owner. Then once that's adequately satisfied, the next level of needs is impact. Impact is the creation of transformation. It's where our businesses are not in the business of transactions with clients, but transforming people's lives. We fundamentally shift their life in a permanent positive way. And then the highest level is called legacy. What was fascinating about my research about the legacy level is this is where business owners realized they were never business owners. They've always been business stewards. They had a responsibility to bring this business into existence, but it's about the continuance of the business more than their involvement in the business. And, and the last part, just like Maslow, all these elements play out at all times. Like you and I right now are breathing. We aren't thinking about it. It's an automatic thing. All these elements in business must play out at 
at any time. The question simply is, all these issues, which one is the most important to be fixed right now? And we use this hierarchy to pinpoint, or do we need to dislodge something that's blocking an air passageway? Do we need to build the muscle? Whatever it is, we, we focus on the one fix, address it, and we go through the hierarchy to find the next. That's interesting because I, I what I noticed, the, you know, what I've, I suppose what I've developed as an approach over quite a long time, 15 years of helping people start a business is we start with some quite fundamental stuff where people are often drawn to think about their legacy and their impact on mankind. And they're thinking in very lofty ways, which is, which is fine to at least give some thought to at the beginning of where you want to point the business. But if you get stuck there and you're conceptualizing the whole time and coming up with mission statements and so on, and meanwhile you're not making any money and you haven't actually proven you've got to product market fit, then it's all just academic. And and I like now Naval Ravikant who says, let's just get you rich first. And he's sort of attitude, and he's actually quite a profound guy. I don't know if you know him. Uh, he's, he's, I do not. He's fascinating on Twitter. He's, that's a great statement. And he's like, once you once you get rich, then you realize, then you have all the profound thoughts like, oh, money's not it. But until you've got a business that works, you can't really do that. So I suppose that's a long way of saying, for those people who are at the early stage, can they use the fix this next model um, to, to to build the business from scratch? Uh, phase by phase and if they do that are they starting at the bottom of that hierarchy absolutely they can use it uh, it applies to micro enterprises one person startups and, and the biggest companies in the world you know amazon lives by this hierarchy too uh at any given time we have to revert to where the need is so amazon on march 1st they're focusing on legacy impact march 15th covid virus they have to reinvent their sales they actually move to essential product shipments, reprioritizing. They changed their model tremendously and they went back to their base. So entrepreneurs or large companies, every company has to live through this hierarchy. It's essential to the makeup of business. The interesting thing to your point, I just want to validate it, is if I'm a small business owner, I feel for many business owners, the greatest day they have in their business is the day before they start the business because there's a great vision. I'm going to change the world. I have such impact. And we go in and then it's like the oh crap moment. <laughs> I didn't realize no one knows who I am and I need to sell this. So we do need to get rich. And I'd also take it one step further in arguing that our clients want us to be rich. Now they'll never say that. Like no client or prospect will come to you and say, hey, could you, could you double the prices on me? Or hey, could you please rip me off a little bit? I'd like that. But what our clients will say is they want our undivided attention. They want our best effort. They don't want us to be distracted about worrying about we're going to get money tomorrow. They want us fully. And the only way to do that is by being profitable, by concentrating on getting rich. Because if you care for your financials, you'll be able to be focused. Uh, you'll be stable. You'll be able to deliver the best of your services and then scale from there. So you have to build profitability into your organization. It's the only way to be of great service. You must get for the business in order to give to the community. Yeah, no, that's really interesting. And, and you did write a book about the financial aspect, which is partly um, yeah. covered by profit uh, by um, Fix This Next. But the Profit First book I thought was fantastic because people might have heard of this concept in personal finances of pay yourself first. But I think Profit First really made it clear why in a company it should work like that and exactly how you do it. And I was one of those, like many creatively minded entrepreneurs, I didn't 
get into it thinking about numbers and finance and, 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 you know, if I got rich, that would be nice, but that wasn't, I didn't have a plan for it. And what I discovered is that very quickly you get yourself into a mess if you don't pay attention to, to the, to the numbers and do something intelligent. And there's this myth that you highlight, which is if you just get enough sales, it will solve all the problems. And in actual fact, although we just talked about the importance of sales, that alone is not enough. Profitability matters. And I suppose if you're going to explain to people, am, am I am I describing profit first correctly? How would you describe it as a as a philosophy? Yeah. Well, what I realized is that the reason most entrepreneurs get into business there may be two reasons. One is personal freedom that we want to do what we want the way we want to do it when we want. Second element is we want financial freedom. We don't want to worry about bills. We want to live the lifestyle we define for ourselves. The greatest irony is the two primary reasons why we start our business are the two things that rarely happen for business owners. <laughs> you know, we're entrapped by our business. We work harder than we ever have. We compromise our entire life for this business. And we make no money while we do the process. And I'm like, why is this true? Why do most businesses suffer? And I looked, I investigated deeply the financial component and what I've concluded is the foundational formula that we're told about how profitability comes about is flawed. The foundational formula is sales minus expenses equals profit. And uh, it's taught in every accounting book I've ever read. Uh, it's, 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 it's in the vernacular of, of the English language. We, we call profit the bottom line or the year end or the final take. All those elements say the formula itself says that profit comes last. Here's the problem. It's human nature. When something comes last, it means it's insignificant. Like, John, if you if you love your family, I strongly suspect you don't say, I proudly put my family last. <laughs> or, you know, your health, if, if, if you ever had a health scare, it's unlikely you said, you know, it's time I start putting my health last. Of course not. Last means it doesn't matter. Not now. It's the manana syndrome. So what I did in the profit first system is we simply put profit first. We flipped the formula. It's sales minus Profit equals expenses. And what I mean in practice is every time we have a sale, we take a predetermined percentage of that money and put it into an account called profit. We hide the money away from ourselves. It's the pay yourself first principle from personal finances translated into business. My, my favorite part of Profit First is that now it works with our established habits. Of the entrepreneurs I've surveyed, and I can only estimate it's been hundreds of thousands, every speaking engagement I do, uh, I'll have people raise their hands and, and answer this question. I ask people, I say, who here logs into your bank account to see how much money you have? I call it bank balance accounting. And if you have money, you feel confident you can spend it. If you don't, you start to panic. And all the hands go up. And I, I, I acknowledge those folks and say, listen, that's called human nature. You are totally normal. So we need to channel that habit. Profit First is a system that we set up at the bank account level. So now when I log into my bank account, there's an account that says profit. There's an account that says owner's compensation, which is different than profit um, and must be distinguished. There's another account that says taxes because I've yet to visit any country on this planet where the government doesn't stretch its long hand into a small business and yank money out in taxes. We must reserve for that. Uh, OPEX, which is the operations of the business. Now when money flows in, say $1,000 uh, flows into your, or 1,000 pounds flows into your business, you don't have 1,000 pounds. Uh, the money must be carved up. You know, 10% goes to profit. 
So there's 100 pounds there. You know, 500 pounds may go to owner's comp. A percentage will go to tax. And now you found out your operating expenses, the money available to run your business is maybe 300 pounds or 200 pounds. It's not 1,000 like we saw. You now work within the bucket or the envelope of what's truly available to operate your business. So that, that's how the system works. And, it, and I think it's a great idea because it just, you know, when you're forced to think about something, you think about something. And so if you haven't got enough money to pay for all these different, you know, I have loads of these online subscriptions for apps and things. Yeah. And I've, you know, I'm, there are ones I'm paying for I'm not even using. But when you see that you've, you've got limited funds for, for these uh, outgoing expenses now, it forces you to go, well, what can I get rid of? And can I call someone up and renegotiate how much I'm paying for this? And otherwise, if it's just one big vat of cash, um, you never really go through that pain barrier. So I, it, that's a great idea. That's right. There's, there's a, a human behavioral phenomena that's called Parkinson's law. And this was a philosopher studying our use of resources. He was doing it around time, but it applies to all aspects. But the argument of Parkinson's law is that as a resource expands in its availability, there's more of something, our consumption will increase to meet the supply. It's the reverse of the demand supply curve. The old demand supply curve says, as there's more demand, uh, more vendors and people appear to supply and service that demand. He argued the reverse from a behavioral aspect. You know, if you put one chocolate chip cookie in front of me, which is my favorite addiction, I will eat the one cookie. If you put 15 cookies in front of me, I'll eat more than one. I work within what's available. So as more money comes into our business, it is the natural behavioral response to say, oh, we can grow more. And so we spend more. It's almost uncanny, but many businesses, as income slowly increases over time or quickly, that expenses uncannily move at the exact <laughs> same rate. You know, yeah. Every time we're like, I'm fine. when I achieve a million uh, pounds in revenue, that's when I've arrived. Or maybe it's 10 million. And we never seem to get there. Well, you never will get there because Parkinson's law says we consume what's available. Therefore, when we constrain the availability, to your point, we start working within what's truly available. We say, oh, can't current those expenses. Here's my favorite part of Profit First. So we estimate there's over 350,000 companies globally now doing Profit First. And what we've found with these businesses, consistently, the businesses that do Profit First outpace their contemporaries that are not doing Profit First in growth, meaning businesses taking profit first are growing faster, which sounds counterintuitive because we all know it takes money to make money that we need to reinvest and plow back. But what our research and experience is showing us is that when a business takes its profit first, they work within constrained operating expenses, they have to be much more selective on where they spend their money. Therefore, they do the diligence of determining, does this really provide value or not? If it does, they move toward it. Is that marketing really serving me or is it arbitrary? If it's serving me, they do it. But what's not, they remove. So they start doing the right things right and their business starts growing faster by taking that profit first. Oh, wow. That's excellent. And there, there's so many uh, fascinating books you've written. But one question I'm really curious about is as an author, and there, there are probably quite a few people listening to this who'd love to write a nonfiction book, how do you write a bestseller, Mike? You've had New York Times, multiple New York Times bestsellers, haven't you? Yeah. So um, how you write it, I think, is a couple, two or three things. One thing, at least for me, is I put my soul into writing a book. Everything I know, I put in the book. I don't hold back anything. I think um, some books, 
struggle and having success because the author elected to hold back a bit or piece so they can get business behind the book. You, know, you read the book, but now it's really a marketing piece. Ironically, the more you contribute to the book, the better marketing it does because you've proven the whole concept out. And now there's a community that says, I now I get the concept, I still don't wanna do it myself. And they come and they buy whatever other offering you have. So step one is put every ounce of your knowledge into that book, be of the greatest service. A great book does wonders for itself because then the consumer who reads it becomes your marketing agent. They tell other people, you must read this book. Then the second part of authorship that I think some authors don't realize is just because you write it does not mean they will come. We need to market like a like our our lives depend on it. So we need to seed the market. I believe you need I I believe I need at least at least ten to twenty thousand readers to to buy my book because I believe if I can market say twenty thousand readers to read my book, then about twenty percent. This is called the Pareto principle. A small percentage. So. 20% of 10,000, 2,000 people will actually read it. Now, 10,000 have bought it, 2,000 will actually read it. The rest will put on the shelf for a year or for the rest of their lives. Those 2,000 people, again, multiply that by 20%, 400 will say, this spoke to me at the right time and it changed my life. So now I got 400 fans. Those 400 fans, can they tell another, you know, if they're really fans of this, can they tell another 100 people and convince those people to buy? Well, now I've seeded 4,000 new purchases. So I know to get this momentum started, I really need to market aggressively. That's the, the second big step. Um, and then the third step is, um, is, is to realize that authorship, for, at least for me, is a career. It, it's not a single book. It is something I'll do to my final breath on this planet. Um, it, it's not a one and done. This is um, something I'm going to keep doing for the rest of my life. It may, maybe it doesn't mean producing more and more books. That is my intention. But may, maybe it simply means constantly promoting the books that are of service, but I'm, I'll never stop you know, promoting and spreading the word on them. Mm, wow. That, that's quite inspiring. And, and the, yeah, the marketing part is something people underestimate, don't they? They think it's uh, totally interesting. write a good book and that's it. <laughs> it's so sad. So yeah, write a great book. And, and sadly, I've read some amazing books that no one knows about. Um, and it just kills me. Uh, one of those books is a book called World Famous by uh, a guy named David Tyerman, um, a British fellow, actually. And just it's a phenomenal book on marketing. And he didn't market his book that's phenomenal on marketing. Um, he, he wrote a great book and said that this is a life changer. And it is. It's just the word is not out and he's not pushing it. He didn't push it that way. I think he's re-inspired to do that. Um, marketing is particularly for a brand new author, is 99% of the work. You're going to work your tail off <clears throat> producing an amazing book, and then you're going to work your tail off 99 yeah. times more <clears throat> to market it. Your second book is only 98% of your effort. Your third is 97. You see the trend now. I'm <laughs> on my fifth book. About 95% of my time is marketing, and 5% <laughs> is putting everything can into the book. Yeah. Yeah. So for people who are at the beginning of this entrepreneurial journey, where do you recommend people start with your books? Uh, is the one in particular? You know, I, I recommend starting with Fix This Next because the biggest challenge, even for early entrepreneurs, is not knowing what their biggest challenge is. You know, a brand new business, we run out to get the logo that's going to impress the world and spend, you know, 500 pounds on something that's never going to be seen or recognized or remembered by anybody. Um, 
fix this next. I, I talk about that propensity to move to these arbitrary things that satisfy our ego, but don't satisfy the customer. So I'd start, I'd start there. Actually, if, if you know what your biggest challenge is in your business, you're, you're confident and, and you've proof it's that biggest challenge, then I would seek a book that serves it. Maybe it's one of my books or maybe someone else's, but seek the knowledge that serves your biggest challenge. If you don't know what your biggest challenge is, I would start with fix this next. And I think it's a really appealing idea because it, it does, as you say in the book, in, in Fix This Next, it, it seems like everything needs fixing at once. And I love the idea that if you, that there is some order to it, but you don't have to take it on all at once because it's overwhelming if you do that. So if you, you fix the right. thing at the bottom of the hierarchy, and then as you say, sometimes it has a knock-on effect that there's a benefit beyond just the thing you're fixing. So in actual fact, in the process of maybe in getting your sales to really take off, you actually do discover something about your impact and, you know, something higher up. It's about your big mission because that's part of your sales message. That's right. Yeah. So this, the hierarchy is not a ladder. You don't climb it step by step into the top. You you address a need. And, and in the book, I detail actually 25 needs at each level. There's five needs. You address a need and then you may springboard up to impact or legacy. And then as you address that, you may revert back down to a foundational need. It's like building a building. If I'm building a five-level structure, um, I, I need a foundation that's strong enough to support the level above it. So I don't start at the fifth level in thin air so it'll collapse to the ground. But I also don't build this massive foundation and put a little micro building above it that falls within it. We, we build relationally. And any time as I'm building up, if a foundational situation happens, if there's a crack in the foundation, I go back to the foundation, shore it up, and start building again. So you, you will ping pong around. Yeah. And that, well, like you say, even Amazon, you know, can't sort of go even back, the mighty Amazon, yeah, go back yeah. down a few levels. So uh, I think that's fascinating. And for anybody who wants to find out about all these different books you have, where and particularly about Fix This Next, where should they go to first? So, well, Fix This Next is the best uh, resource to start with. So, fixthisnext.com. And why that's a good resource is on that site, there is a free evaluation. You don't even have to read the book yet, you can pinpoint exactly what your business needs fixed right now. So go to fixthisnext.com. And there's also a link to my main site um, from there so you can discover my other books. Yeah, oh, that's a good idea. I'm going to take, I haven't done the test yet, so I will do that. Oh yeah, I'm curious what, what the finds for you. Yeah. And uh, can you, do you uh, know already what your next book is going to be about? And do you keep that very secret? I do. I already, I'm under contract with my publisher. Oh really? So the working title, the working title is Different is Better. Uh, it may change. It probably will. The realization is marketing. It's a marketing book as there's three uh, kind of foundational elements we must address in marketing that will guarantee you get attention um, and will attract customers. The, the thing is almost every marketing campaign does it wrong. There's a behavioral mech. I study behavioral psychology. There's a behavioral mechanism that is the human nature that we must pause when we see something unexpected because our brain, our reptilian brain at the amygdala level must evaluate, is this a threat? Is our life in jeopardy here? Is it an opportunity, something we should be using? Or in most cases can simply be disregarded and ignored. But our mind will spend a millisecond or more evaluating that. So we must, as marketers, trigger that response. Then once we have it, we must follow them through an attraction, drawing them in and a trigger causing them to take action. And many businesses, they just whiff on the first step. They don't even do something that triggers the brain to pay attention. So how do you do that? And that's what this book will teach. 
Wow, that's fascinating. <laughs> okay, so yeah, I'm, excited. I'm really excited for it. I was work. I, I write every day. I was working on this morning. Uh, this just another insight. I was looking at signs, street signs. Um, they're popular everywhere I've traveled where you see someone holding up a sign. There's so many signs held up by people or just around that we ignore them all. Well, there's this one uh, gentleman in the US that started just spinning a sign. He became a sign spinner that started about 15, 20 years ago to start spinning signs. That one differentiator triggered people to have that, that reptilian response saying, whoa, what's going on here? Opportunity threat or disregard. Well, it's not a threat. Um, it's not the meh. It's not to be disregarded because it's so unique. It became an entertainment factor. So that's an opportunity. So people paid attention to those signs. Even something that small, just by spinning and flipping a sign, shifts the entire context um, of what we do. So how, how do we do that in our business? Mm. Oh, I love the sound of that. Good. Well, I shall go and take your um, assessment on fixthisnext.com because that sounds... That sounds great. There's loads of things. I'm just starting to get into this, like scaling stuff and how do you scale and how do you make sure that you don't break things in the process. So yes. uh, your books are extremely helpful for that. Great. Yeah, I think it will serve. Well, thank you, Mike. I really appreciate that. My pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Ideas Lab podcast. Please do subscribe. And if you've enjoyed this episode, it would be great if you could leave us a review. You can get links and details of everything mentioned in the podcast in the show notes, along with photos and video clips from many of our episodes. Just go to theideaslab.org forward slash podcast. Podcast.